The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the word of the Lord. Dear friends, when was the last time you experienced wonder? The last time you were struck by an object's beauty, splendor, and majesty? The last time your breath was taken away and you forgot all that surrounded you because you were mesmerized by that moment. Perhaps it was the view waiting for you at the end of a grueling hike where you summited a mountain peak and you saw the valley floor below. Or perhaps the time you stepped out onto your hotel's balcony to see the sun setting over a majestic ocean. Or perhaps it was the wonder of seeing your favorite basketball team come from behind in the waning moments of the game. I can't believe what I just saw. For me, it was last August where I had the opportunity to visit Banff uh, uh, National Park in Canada. I'll never forget the first time my eyes laid on Lake Moraine. Uh, it's hard to describe, but the, the lakes there come from the glacial waters. And in these glaciers, they have this sediment that causes the water to look this amazing aqua blue. And so I'm seeing Lake Moraine in this, this crazy aqua blue color. And the water is so clear that the canoes look like they're floating on air. And I was just taking in the wonder of its beauty. I spent probably two to three hours just studying, soaking in the beauty of this lake. It probably helped that I was on crutches and didn't have many other places to travel either, but still, it was absolutely stunning. We've all had these moments, moments where you forget yourself, Moments where all your troubles and stress melt away in light of that wonder. Well, as we turn the calendar to December and begin a new Advent series, wonder is what we'll be focusing on for the next few weeks. The theme of our Advent series is called Recapturing the Wonders of Christmas. I believe that wonder is a very appropriate response to Christmas. After all, wonder is what we see and witness in the Gospels. For example, in Luke chapter 2, a heavenly choir of angels appear before shepherds. And they tell the shepherds about the arrival of the newborn Jesus. And they sing glory to God in the highest peace on earth. And immediately afterwards, these shepherds, after receiving this stunning news, go and seek and find Joseph, Mary, and the newborn Jesus. 
in Luke 2, verses 17 through 18, records what happens next. It reads, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They wondered at what the shepherds told them. And I love what happens next. Verse 19 reads, But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart, meditating on them. If that's not a picture of wonder, I don't know what is. I picture Mary silently treasuring all that was happening to her, meditating on the wonder of the arrival of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing about wonder. As suddenly as it arrives, it also leaves, doesn't it? As quickly as it comes, it flees. As amazing as Banff was for me, I'm a little bit reluctant to go back. Why? Because I know my second visit won't be as amazing as the first. I know that when I see Lake Moraine again, it's not going to make me go, wow, like the first time. My second visit is not going to be as wondrous as the first. Is it because Banff has changed? No, it's because I've changed. That's how wonder works. The more familiar you are with an object, the more elusive wonder becomes. And I think that's what happens to us with Christmas. We celebrate it every year. We hear sermon after sermon about the birth of Jesus Christ. And over the years, that wonder fades. Remember a few years ago, one of our kids remarked, Dad, that Christmas feeling, I'm not feeling it this year anymore. It's because you're getting older. That's why. We are no longer energized by Christmas as we once were. We're no longer look forward to it as we once did. We're no longer moved by the birth and arrival of Jesus Christ. That's why the theme is recapturing the wonders of Christmas. For many of us here, we need to recapture and re-experience that wonder. And so it's my hope that for the next few weeks, we will be able to experience in fresh ways just how amazing and stunning is the entrance of Jesus into this world. I'm hoping to highlight different facets and aspects of Christmas to help you regain that wonder, which will ultimately lead to worship. Well, this morning, the aspect I'm going to focus on is the timing of Christmas, God's timing. And what I'm going to do is Uh, share with you four reasons why the entrance and timing of Jesus Christ into this world is wondrous. And these four reasons are the spiritual reason, the strategic reason, the census, and the scientific reason. You see what I did there? Every word starts with I tried really hard. (laughs) Spiritual, strategic, 
senses. I know it starts with the C, but it still counts. And then lastly, scientific. Okay, so let's begin with the spiritual reason for God's timing. Let me read Galatians 4 again for you. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Paul tells us that God sent his son when the fullness of time had come. He draws our attention to the timing of Jesus' arrival. What does it mean fullness of time had come? I know the wording is somewhat strange, but what Paul is basically saying is he's telling us that a specific stage in biblical history has come to completion. That a specific time period has run its course preparing the way for the entrance of Jesus Christ. What is this age that has come to, full, uh, to fullness? Well, if you read the, the context of this passage, if you specifically read Galatians 3 and 4, it becomes very clear that the stage in history Paul is referring to is the stage of the Mosaic Law. When God gave his covenant to Moses on Sinai, encapsulated by the Ten Commandments, it began a stage that would run its course until the arrival of Jesus. And what was the purpose of this stage? What was the purpose of the law, of the Mosaic Covenant? The purpose was to convict mankind of his sin and his subsequent need for a savior. The purpose of the Mosaic law was to convict us of our sinfulness and our subsequent need for a savior. Galatians 3 verse 19 reads, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed, meaning Jesus, to whom the promise was made would come. A few verses later in verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And so God gave Israel the law not so that Israel will see how good they can be, but the converse, God gave the law to Israel so that Israel will see how sinful they really are. The law acts as a mirror that reveals the corruption and depravity of our hearts. And that's what we find in the Old Testament. And that's why the Old Testament is, is so morbid and so, uh, so corrupt it's full of violence, heartbreak, and betrayal, beginning with Adam and Eve, to Noah and the flood, to the patriarchs, to Moses, to the judges, to the kings, to the exile. Generation after generation, a common theme unites them all. Mankind hates God. Mankind wants to do nothing with God. No matter how many warnings God offers, no matter how many prophets he sends, no matter how many encouragements he gives, Israel finds itself over and over in the mud on its face. 
guilty for their disobedience. And so by the time we reach the end of the Old Testament, we are left asking, who will save us? Because clearly, we cannot save ourselves. Unfortunately, this lesson of realizing our need for a Savior is one that we continue need to hear today. We live in a world that refuses to give up the lie that we can be our own gods. We live in a world where the dominant message that is proclaimed in our culture is that if you try harder, if you eat right, if you have the right life coach, if you listen to the right podcasts, if you follow this diet, if you follow these traditions, you will become full, complete. You will be saved. I recently started reading a book by Yuval Harari. It's a New York Times best-selling book called Homo Deus. And in this book, he gives a very optimistic future picture of what mankind can achieve. And he writes how for the past how many thousands of years, mankind has been dogged by three threats that has been pulling us down. These three enemies include famine, plague, and war. That over the past how many thousands of years, famine, plague, and war has dogged us and dragged us into the gutter. And then he writes, but within the, the last century, we've been able to conquer these threats. Now that we've conquered these threats, we can now attain a level of, of success man's never enjoyed before. We can become perpetually happy. We can live up to 150, 200 years. We can achieve godlike status, hence the title of his book, Homo Deus, Man God. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, but what about COVID? What about Ukraine? Now, most recently, what about Gaza? And then I looked at the timestamp. It says 2017 is when this book was written. No matter how many advancements we make, our need for God, our need for a Savior subsists. And so Jesus comes at the right time. He comes at the end of the old covenant to prove to us that he is the savior we long for. So that's the spiritual reason. Let's move on now to the strategic timing of Jesus' arrival. I don't know if you're aware, but there are many strategic advantages to the fact that Jesus comes into this world at the time that he did, specifically during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Let me ask you, what stands in the way of the advancement and the proliferation of a movement like Christianity. What often stands in the way of the, the flourishing and the advancement of a movement are the boundaries of a specific country or culture, right? 
especially in Jesus' day where polytheism ruled the day, where people accepted that there were many gods and believed that all of these gods ruled over a specific region. And so you had the God of Rome, you had the God of Egypt, all of these gods exist, but they had boundaries to their power. And so you can go around telling people that Jesus is God all you want, but they're going to limit that belief to he must only be God here in the land of Israel. But Jesus comes at a time where Rome ruled the world in that day. He came at a time where the Roman Empire spread far and wide, covering parts of Europe, Palestine, North Africa, and Asia. What this meant was, is that if you were a Roman citizen, you pretty much had a visa to all of these countries. Not only that, but he comes at a time during the Pax Romana, otherwise known as the Age of Roman Peace, making travel all the more easy and accessible, allowing for the spread of Christianity. Another barrier that stands in the way for the advancement of a movement, and this is something that our missionaries experience to this day, is the barrier of language. Many of our missionaries are currently asking us to pray, pray that I might learn how to speak Japanese, how to speak Mandarin, how to speak Italian. And yet, during the Roman Empire, you had an official language that was instituted, Koinonia Greek. That was the official tongue of the Roman Empire. And so if you wanted to do business, if you wanted to trade, if you wanted to make money, you had to learn this language. And by knowing this language, it enabled the apostles and the missionaries to share the gospel in areas way beyond their own culture. Last but not least, the third strategic advantage of coming during this time is that one other thing that Rome was famous for was its engineering. Rome, uh, uh, in particular, was known for its ability to make roads. Rome built a web of roads that stretched over 250,000 miles across three continents. Of course, these roads were initially built for warfare so that soldiers and supplies and weapons can uh, be funneled to the front lines. But later, they, they would become vital arteries for trade and commerce. And so on these roads, you would have soldiers, weapons, goods, spices, and even the gospel going to all these areas. And so for these reasons, there are many who observe that the timing of Jesus' arrival was very strategic. Third, when it comes to God's timing, we must not forget the census. Though there are a lot of Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled by the arrival of Jesus, anywhere between 20 to 30 prophecies in the Old Testament, there's one in particular that I want to highlight this morning. 
a man named Micah, 800 years before the birth of Jesus, prophesied in Micah 5, verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah prophesies that the coming Messiah, one who is of old, he hints at the divine origin of this Messiah, will come from Bethlehem. Now let me ask you, where were Joseph and Mary from? Where did they live? Where was their hometown? They're from Nazareth. Do you know how far Nazareth is from Bethlehem? It's approximately 80 miles. That's a long distance if you're traveling on car, by car. It's a longer distance if you're traveling by foot or camel. It's really long if you're traveling nine months pregnant. Any doctor would tell you when you're nearing the completion of pregnancy, don't go anywhere, stay near home. And so, how in the world do Joseph and Mary end up 80 miles away from home and giving birth in Bethlehem? The only reason is because of the census. Luke 2, verses 1 through 3 reads, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. What makes this census remarkable is that Caesar wanted everyone to register for the sentence, not in the town that you live in, which would have been extremely convenient for Joseph and Mary, but rather you need to go to the town of the family of origin. And Joseph is from the tribe of David and so needs to go to Bethlehem. And how often were these censuses issued? Once every 14 to 15 years. The timing is staggering. And yet, it's made possible because of the prophecy that had to be fulfilled 800 years before. Last but not least, the fourth reason why God's timing leads us to wonder is because of science. Have you ever considered all that had to have happened for the star to appear and guide the Magi to Judea. Now, there are various theories that attempt to explain the star that the Magi witnessed and followed. One theory is that it wasn't a star that they saw, but rather a, a conjunction of planets that, that Saturn and Jupiter aligned on that day, creating a brighter light than normal, that shone brighter than all the other stars. Another uh, uh, theory is that what they witnessed was a comet that came out of nowhere. 
A third theory is that what they saw was a supernatural light that God instilled in the sky to guide the wise men. Now, any of these three theories are tenable and possible. But let's assume that what the Magi saw was really a star. If that's the case, people believe that what they saw in the sky was nothing less than a supernova. It was a supernova because it appeared and disappeared after a few days. What's a supernova? A supernova, I'm going to get a little geeky here, okay, uh, is literally the explosion of a star. Every star has a shelf life. And when it reaches its end, it runs out of fuel, causing the star to collapse on itself due to the the gravitational force, which leads to a a shock wave of ripples that ends up with the star literally exploding. And the power of that explosion is so strong that that light travels across the universe, and shines brighter than anything else that we see. Now, if you've ever studied astronomy, the first thing that will strike you is the size of the universe, is it not? The universe is vast and large. Here in America, the unit of measurement for distance, is the mile. Everywhere else, it's the kilometer. In outer space, what's the unit of measurement? A light year. It's the distance light travels in a year. And so how far is that distance? How far can light travel in a year? I need to look down at my notes. 5.88 trillion miles. This is why astronomers say that every time you see a star, you're looking into the past. For example, the sun, our closest star, is 93 million miles away from Earth. Since light travels at 186,000 miles per second, it takes light from the sun eight minutes to reach the earth. So every time you see the sun, you're looking eight minutes into the past. You're looking at the sun as it was eight minutes ago. Now, one thing that scientists observe about these supernovas is that they must occur far away because if they happen in the proximity of where our galaxy is, The the, the force is so strong, it will obliterate us. And so to give you an example, the most recent supernova that we uh, witnessed and documented and can see with, with the naked eye was all the way back in 1987. Can you guess how far away that supernova was from Earth? Astronomers estimate that it was 168,000 light years away. And so when you saw the supernova here on Earth, you're looking 168,000 years into the past. 
let's assume that the supernova the Magi witnessed was 150,000 light years away. What does that mean? It means that God's plan was set in motion 150,000 years before. It means that God's plan was 150,000 years in the making. That's staggering, is it not? For me, I don't even know when I'm going to eat lunch tomorrow. I can barely plan a sermon series one month ahead. I'm always telling Lewis and everyone else, uh, hold off on the theme of the sermon series because I haven't figured it out. God started his plan to send Jesus into the world to save us from our sins 150,000 years before Jesus ever came. Dear friends, as much as God is sovereign over these cosmic realities and can execute plans 150,000 years in the making, he is also sovereignly in control of the minute details of your life. The Bible tells us that everything that happens in our life is according to his sovereign plan. And for those who love him, for those who belong to him, his plan is always good. I know that some of you here this morning are having a hard time understanding what God is doing in your life. There are things happening, whether in your life or in the life of loved ones, that, that perplex you, that, that go beyond you. But I, I want you to know that though you may not know what he's doing, he does. And this morning, he's inviting you to trust him, to trust his sovereign wisdom, to trust that he is going to take care of you. He is executing his perfect plan in your life. What is more, as much as God planned the entrance of Jesus into this world 2,000 years ago with such precision and care, God has also sovereignly planned this moment right now. He has sovereignly brought you to church this morning so that you can sing songs that you cannot read and listen to this very message. Why? Perhaps to tell us that he doesn't need technology in order to work in our hearts to show us how big he is. Perhaps to tell you this morning, stop relying on yourself. Stop trying to be your own savior. Stop trying to make yourself something based on what you do. It's not enough. 
Look to Jesus. Rest in what he's done for you. Don't look at your GPA, the college you you get into, the, the salary you make, the 401k that's building, the house that you live in, the car that you drive, your popularity on social media. Don't look to those things to hoist your life up. Look to what Jesus has done on the cross. Let him be the foundation for your soul and identity. Perhaps God wants you to know you cannot do life on your own. You need a savior. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 reads, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Could it be that God has fine-tuned the details of your life so that you might be here and hear his invitation, his desire to come into your heart and take over your life and dine with you? And this invitation to commune with you and enter your heart is not just a one-time invitation that happens at the beginning of your faith's journey, but it's the very lifestyle mode of the Christian life. And so for those of you who have trusted in Jesus, it's something that he desires to do with you today. In any case, I pray that these four reasons, the spiritual, the strategic, the census, and the scientific reasons will, will move our hearts to wonder, stand in wonder at the, at the wisdom and the majesty of God's perfect timing, both in history as well as in your own life. Let's pray. Lord, you are so much bigger than we can possibly contemplate or wrap our arms around. You move in a way that goes way beyond our highest thinking and plans. And yet, as great and awesome as you are, you care so much about us. You care so much about me. You are a God who is both transcendent and imminent, and I I, I pray, O Lord, that the wonder of your transcendence, as well as your desire to be intimately involved in the minutiae of our daily living, would cause us to fall on our knees in wonder and worship. Lord, if there's any here who still don't know you, who are still trying to live life without you, Lord, would you humble them and help them to come to the realization you wanted us to see that we cannot save ourselves. We need Jesus as our Savior. And I pray, O Lord, that you would enter all of our hearts this morning and enable us to experience your communion, your grace, and your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.